The philosopher Glenn Albrecht coined the word stolostalgia using the suffix algia, meaning pain, and solaceum means in Latin comfort, and desolaire to leave alone. So the word solastalgia suggests the loss of comfort, the loneliness of being estranged from home. All of this in his search to describe the emotions felt due to the loss of home because of climate change. Over the course of history, we've not only had new words to describe emotions, but we've also experienced different emotions, unknown to previous and future generations. Past guests, particularly Lisa Feldman Barrett, have helped us to understand that we construct emotions to make sense of the world. With this in mind, the idea of emotional history becomes an intriguing new way to think about the past and perhaps the future. In this episode, we talk to Richard Firth Godbeheer, one of the world's leading experts on disgust and emotions. He talks to us about why he started to consider emotions as an interesting way of making sense of the past, that emotions are a relatively modern construction, why emotions rather than ideas are what have propelled history, the origins of our modern understanding of emotions, what his research reveals about love and how emotions are playing out in our polarizing world. Stay tuned for a really interesting conversation. Hey folks, welcome to the Evolving Leader Podcast, a show born out of the belief that we need deeper and more committed leadership to confront the world's biggest challenges. I'm Scott Allender, co-host of the show, along with my friend, Mr. John Gomes. John, how are you feeling today? I am feeling energized and excited and curious to talk to our guests today. How are you feeling? Uh, I was feeling a bit distracted this morning, but I had myself a 10-minute little meditation and body scan before coming on here, so now I'm feeling focused and eager and curious as well, because I've been really excited about this one, as we are joined by Richard Firth Godby here, one of the world's leading experts on disgust and a researcher on emotions history, science, language, and philosophy. As well as his consultancy work, he is an award-winning academic and an honorary research fellow at the Center of the History of Emotions at Queen Mary University, London. Richard, welcome to The Evolving Leader. It's great to be here. Thank you for having me. Well, um, we ask all our guests this, but we certainly have to ask you, how are you feeling today, <laughs> Richard? Me? I am feeling good. Quite tired. Um, I'm at the process of the book being sold to South America. And so I get people contact me at nine in the evening saying, can you do an interview? Oh, when? 3 a.m. your time. Okay. But other than that, it's it's good. (laughs) (laughs) Well, in your excellent book, A Human History of Emotion, um, you explore two intriguing questions. How our emotions have shaped the course of human history Mm -hmm. and how our experience and understanding of emotions evolved with us. Why, as a a historian, did you start to focus on emotions as a way of making sense of the past? 
Well, it began uh, back, as many things do, with research when I was an undergraduate. And my now wife, um, she has a phobia known as a metaphobia, which is a phobia of vomit and vomiting. Um, and it's something I wanted to understand. And I decided actually at the toss of a coin on history instead of psychology. But we're still very interested in psychology. So I was always trying to find some way of looping that in to history somehow. And then I realised there was one, and I wrote an essay, an undergraduate essay, for one of my courses on witchcraft and disgust, and got a massive mark and the comment, you should publish this, and thought, ooh, I seem to have hit a niche here. Um, this is interesting. And then discovered that I wasn't the first historian to think, shall we look at emotions in history? And there was this whole field that went back 20, 30 years, um, and found it deeply fascinating, the idea that you could look at emotions in history in lots of different ways as a, as a history of science. How did people think emotions worked as a, a cultural historian? How did cultures examine their own emotions and understand the emotions and work through emotions as all sorts of different types of history that all have this banner history of emotions? I thought, yeah, since I seem to have a knack for it, I'll carry on doing it. So you suggest that emotions are a relatively modern idea a cultural hmm. construction can you talk to us about that it's yes the current term emotion it in the current understanding kind of comes from a guy in 1900 called uh, thomas brown and he was trying to answer an age-old question which is how do we separate thinking and feeling turns out you can't but he didn't know that hmm. at the time but he um had this idea that this thing that Descartes had talked about and other people, which was known as the emotion, which is how feelings came out of your body. They thought they started in the heart and they motioned outwards and then became an action. And when the passions hit you in your heart, because that's what they call feelings, passions and a few other things, they would then emote outwards. And he's like, hang on, but maybe that feeling, it's a bit like when you see something and you just see it. You don't see an apple and go, I have seen an apple and then register you've seen an apple. You simply see an apple. So when you feel, say, fear, you don't think, I have felt some fear, and then act. It just comes in and emotes out. So that's what the feeling is. It's an emotion. Mm -hmm. um, and that is a category of feeling that we have now used, in, in the West in particular, English speaking, that, that's this kind of a category of feeling. But it's not the only category of feeling there's ever been. Like I just mentioned passions. Passions are an old idea that... A feeling starts in the sensitive part of the soul, part that feels things and then can affect your mind. But they also had affects, which were the things you thought about and they made you feel a certain way and then can affect your body. And they're good things like righteous anger. And there's also sentiments, which were the moral feelings. Someone is morally good or someone creates beautiful art. You have this sentiment for it. Um, and so there are lots and lots of categories of feelings. It's only now we kind of say, well, their feelings are emotions, and we use the word interchangeably. And even now we don't. We now know that mm. there's something called moods and something called temperaments and something called, you know, frustrations as its own category. Desires is often talked about different to emotions. So even now, emotions is one of many categories of feeling. But we talk about it as if it isn't. So that's why I say it's kind of constructed. It's a box we put certain feelings in. So if we if we come to today for a moment, um, yeah, we've had many people on the show, including neuroscientists like Lisa Feldman Barrett and Mark Solms mm -hmm. and um, the neurologist Robert Burton, talk to us about their thinking on the nature of emotion. 
from your perspective, how do you describe what an emotion is? It's a good question. I'm kind of on Lisa's side. Um, <laughs> I'm coming from Lisa's page. The idea that it is, um, to shorten it, it is a reaction to an external stimulus that subverts a heuristic, subverts a rule of a, a rule of thumb, something we expect, and our body through interoception reacting to that. Um, and us then labeling it based upon our culture and our understanding and, and the context and acting accordingly. That's a longer answer than most, but that's kind of what I think of emotion is. Uh, it's all that. So, yeah, I'm very much a, 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 a Lisa Feldman fanboy, to be quite honest. I think she's the closest to getting it right. Yeah, <laughs> we are too. We are too. <laughs> so, the emotions are constructed rather than hardwired responses. Yes. Um, is yes, really but they're what, yeah, psychologically constructed because often you say that and they'll think yeah. social construction is not quite the same. Yeah. Although there is that argument yeah. out there. But. How do you actually study the history of emotions? Tell us more about the actual process of studying it, if you would. Well, like I was mentioning earlier, there are a few different ways you can because it, it encompasses so many different kinds of history so my original undergraduate degree was a degree in intellectual history and in history of emotion in history of ideas um, and so I looked at it originally as what did people think emotions were how did they categorize them how did they try to make a science of it so you could do a history of science as well what was the science of motion to the Greeks how did they scientifically look at them but you can also look at it from other aspects so you can look at it like a history of the body you can say how did people describe their feelings how did it affect their bodies in the way they understood the world around them um you could do a psychoanalytic history and go into effect theory and a lot of freud um and mm. look at it from that perspective of sort of the freudian effect of the effects and your relationship with objects and with events and how they you perceive them and how they make you feel um so it, it's not one history really it's lots of them one of the most common ways of getting mm. into it though is comes from somebody uh, called uh, will reddy william reddy who came up with this idea of emotives and they came from austin and language theory and the idea that when you say a certain type of word a performative it changes the world around you so if you say for example i declare war and you have the power to You've literally changed the world. You've said of certain, it's changed the world. And he said, well, there are also emotives. There are things you can find people have written in historical records that you can tell is them describing changing their emotional world, perhaps as they write it or as they paint it or as they record it. Um, and he called those emotives. And so it's things like... Um, I'm feeling happy or I am sad or it might be a noise like fee which you'll find in a record which is kind of yuck and things like that you can find these little emotives these little sentences and bits in text where people are trying to either invoke an emotion in the person reading it or they are trying to if it's like a diary private thing get to grips with emotions themselves and that's kind of your way in as a historian this kind of language and then you get bigger mm. from there and Sometimes it's really obvious because it's, I'm writing about the passions. And you go, oh, this is easy. And sometimes you've got to pick through it and find these little phrases. 
So building on that, um, you know, yeah. the um, in your book you you talk about certain powerful emotions that have acted as a driving force of change throughout history. Mm. We generally think about ideas um, being the thing that propels history. Can you help us to understand a bit more about how we feel about these ideas being as important as the the feelings are as important as the ideas themselves? The ideas. Well, what I like to say is nobody ever went to war because they sat down and put a logic table together. Um, usually they go to war because somebody upset them or they have some emotional need or they've decided that bit of the world actually always belonged to them after all, mentioning no names, and that kind of thing. That it's usually there's some kind of emotional reason why people do things like that. And most events in history can be tracked down to emotional reactions to things almost almost nothing again is the work of somebody logically thinking something through and thinking you know what i'll do today i'll go and assassinate a president because scientifically i've done the equations that seems a good thing to do they do it because of some emotional reason there's something driving them emotionally to do whatever they're doing um and so almost every event in history has a big emotional core to it be it the crusades or the birth of a religion or you name it it's an emotional event um it's easier to look at ideas and things which is why historians have always done that uh, because emotions are fuzzy and weird and awkward um whereas person shot person and so person died is kind of not as awkward but uh, we now have the tools so we've started to do it but yeah if you think about it just think, any, any one of you listening, think about your life and try and think of something you did because mathematically it was the right thing to do. And if you think of something, you're probably lying to yourself <laughs> because most of our, uh, uh, what we do are emotions. I'm with Thomas Hobbes on that one. If you read The Leviathan, that's basically what the book's about. People are too emotional unless there's someone to tell them what to do. So, yeah. That's why. <laughs> yeah, well, I think we only have to we only have to really think about Brexit to get a strong handle on what we're talking about here. Can you take us back to ancient Greece and Plato, where you begin your story about understanding mm -hmm. emotions, evolution? Yeah, um, Plato. I mean, Plato is the first one of the first people in the West where we have someone writing and talking about what they called pathé, which are the perturbations in the soul. Which, again, is not far from what Lisa Feldman Barrett talks about now. This idea that there's a stasis and that there's a feedback and that sometimes something shakes it and you feel. Um, there's nothing new under the sun. That's the first thing you find out as a historian. Um, but basically, Plato, he never wrote a, a work about these are what the path they are. These are what emotions are. But you can find them throughout his writings where he will talk about little bits about... This is how I think feelings are structured. This is how I think feelings work. And he generally thought that um, there were three parts to the soul. We all thought that until Descartes came along. That there are three parts to the soul. There was the vegetative bit, the stuff that's alive. Plants have that. That there was a sensitive bit that was moving and feeling things and sensing things and being hungry and being horny and all that kind of stuff. Uh, animals have that. And then there is the thinking bit, the logos, the brain. And humans have all three. We're the only animal on earth that has all three, according to the Greeks. And this middle one, the sensitive one, is where the pathé, the feelings, come from. And it can be so perturbed that it can affect your mind, your logos, and send it wrong. So the idea Plato had is you must learn to control this sort of middle soul. You must learn to 
evaluate it, think about what it's doing, and then act, which later became Stoicism, the great Greek idea of Stoicism, that every time you feel a perturbation, a path, a passion, you really ought to go, is this useful to me and the people around me, or is it not? which kind of sounds a bit like emotional intelligence in some ways. I should evaluate what I feel and use it accordingly and learn how to read things and so on. Because um, as I say, there's nothing new under the sun. Um, it also sounds like cognitive behavioral therapy as well, which uses a very similar technique of stopping and mm-hmm. thinking and being mindful and going, okay, I'm upset. Will this being upset be useful to me? Or should I just let it go? Or should I... F- put it down stick it on the train and send it over there and come to it later what should i do with it um and that was kind of greek thinking uh yet again we can blame the greeks for a lot of modern thinking um, it always <laughs> goes back to plato or aristotle in the end you know just eventually <laughs> um, so yeah it's um that's the kind of the greek thought there are a couple of different takes on that stoicism one aristotle had his own slight much less spiritual take on it he was it was all very physical these feelings whereas plato thought they were forms they were floating in the ether and they came to us but yeah that's that's greek emotions in a nutshell Hmm. so can we turn to um feelings around desire and how they've evolved because you have this entire chapter Mm -hmm. dedicated uh, to our changing relationship with feelings of desire. And it starts with a story of a cruel Indian king, uh, Chandashoka, Chandashoka, who underwent a transformation after a particularly bloody war and became known as Ashoka, the great renowned for kindness. So what have you learned about our relationship with desire? Desire is an interesting thing because um, a lot of religions are based on trying not to have any or to have the right mm. kind because desire is usually seen as in two flavors there's usually type one desire which is the desire that is hunger that is lust that is the wish for riches that is all this kind of stuff the very sort of physical desire and then there's type two which is the desire to desire which is the desire to focus on something desire to work towards something the desire to want to get somewhere to sort of achieve a goal it could also be the desire to not desire. So you can desire to not mm. be greedy. You can desire to not be get upset too easy. You can desire to not fail at something you're working very hard on. Um, and, for example, Ashoka, uh, Chandashoka, he was a type of Hindu who followed his dharma, his path, and he believed his path as a great emperor was to conquer the whole of the region including one particular awkward area that his parents and grandparents had never quite managed to get a grip on. Um, And at the time, he was already kind of flirting with this new religion called Buddhism that had a different view of desire. To them, the path wasn't a material path that led you somewhere that you should follow. It was a reject everything, reject all desire, push it away. The only thing you should desire is nirvana is to reach transcendence that should be it and everything else isn't real so push it away get rid of it focus get to transcendence and when he tried to take this part of india that no one else had managed to take it was horrific there were hundreds of thousands of dead people there were many more refugees he was in the middle of it seeing all this and the story goes we don't know because he told it but the story goes that it was such a traumatic event 
that he fell straight out of this idea of this is what you must do as a leader and said I don't really want to do that and became much more Buddhist and when he switched to Buddhism his new mm. desire was about peacefulness it was about kindness it was following the eightfold path and it was about trying to get rid of those things which would tempt him to come back into this life after he died because the idea was just break the cycle so this kind of desire was more a desire to not to desire and as part of that he started doing things like being much kinder to his people he would plant wells on long roads so people could take drinks he would uh, command people to basically be nice to each other he became a vegetarian because he didn't want to harm animals anymore he did lots of things to completely change there is evidence that he still does a little bit of torturing and a little bit of the old bit of you know raiding pillaging and conquering because these things are never that black and white but in general he's now remembered as this great man who had this huge kingdom that he was very kind leader uh, and it was due to a change of from a desire that was about focusing on a path that you should follow and that's it blindly follow that path forget about everything else which is one form of the many forms that make up hinduism to this other kind of desire which is about no there is no path except for not coming back after you die breaking the cycle of life and death to do that you have to stop clinging to everything get rid of it and just focus on one thing and also not get rid of it to the point where you're starving and that you're hungry because that in itself is a desire that in itself is going too far you have to just balance you have to be in a balance to get where you're going mm. so you're not hungry but nor are you greedy you're not cold but nor are you warm that kind of view so yeah that's kind of uh the story of ashoka um who created matt you can even see today you can go if you go to india even the edge of greece turkey i think it is there are massive pillars he erected with his edicts on them saying i am ashoka this is how I want you to behave, this is what I want you to do, and this is what I'm going to do for you, which go back two and a half thousand years. They're quite impressive. Yeah. As we've mentioned, your main field of study has been discussed. So while some emotions seem very culturally specific, it might make sense that Discuss, for example, as a universal um, experience protecting us from harm, mm. say, rancid food. You're not so sure, I believe. Yeah, I don't think this discuss itself is. Interestingly, when I started my PhD back in the last Ice Age, um, I wanted to show that disgust was universal. Go back to history to prove it. And I did the opposite. I went back there and went, hang on. Mm. Um my first inkling was when I'd realised English didn't even have the word disgust until 1601, nor do we have an equivalent to it. Nothing kind of fitted mm. uh, in the way disgust does. Um, disgust is a form of aversion. What I think is universal is that wish to move away from something that might harm you. That's kind of a universal thing, which makes sense because we're here, aren't we? And without that, evolved we probably wouldn't be because we keep walking towards things that harmed us um <laughs> if those genes were around we'd be in problems we'd have problems so there was this idea of aversion that's different from culture to culture that's not necessarily about food disgust is a very foodie a very mouth a very taste thing we have in the west some places it was about moving away in the 
late 18th century, the German word Ekel, which means discuss now, and is very similar to discuss now, was more back then akin to the feeling you get when someone tickles you, and that sort of, ah, get off, ah, you know. It's describing something slightly different, which is, goes back to the Feldman Barrett idea of there are these core affects, there are these things that are very similar, but how we take them, how we understand them, changes from culture to culture and context to context and um, so yes there is a kind of a yuck and there is also a kind of a and a get away from me sort of thing but it is it is different um another example abominatio abominatio is this idea that's in the bible in the latin bible and that's what you feel god's supposed to feel when you sin this feeling of abomination if you if you do this that's an abomination if you do that that's an abomination in the Hebrew Bible, there are eight different words for this one thing. Eight subtle different forms of this disgust that, that God's supposed to feel. And it was just an act of translation that turned it into one and made them all the same. <laughs> it's, it's the same root disgust for idolatry as it is for rotting meat, apparently. Not to the Hebrews it wasn't. It was quite a subtle difference. So that's why I say disgust isn't necessarily... As we understand it, the whole nausea, uh, yuck thing, that's not universal. Mm-hmm. But avoiding things because they might harm you, that is. So can we turn to love and all of its stages and expressions? Yes. You, you've been looking forward to this one, haven't you, Scott? Well, I'm trying to make <laughs> sense of how I feel about you, John. Because um, you actually, uh, you know... <laughs> neuroscience breaks down love uh, in, in a sort of process uh, approach into a series of states driven by hormones. Uh, what does your research reveal? Well, it doesn't stray away from that, but, it re- but my research, the way I look at love is that it's a very, it's an oft changing idea that can do as much harm as it can good. Um, and that there are different forms of love, again, mapping with the neuroscientist idea that there's attraction, there's limerence, there's all these different states of love, depending on who it is you're loving and what it is you're loving and why it is you're loving them and where you are in a relationship and that kind of thing. But as a historian, uh, I look at things like that love was a driving force behind the Crusades. And so I find that interesting that this very, 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 we all seem to only ever talk about love as being a positive force these days and yet it was actually a force for a pretty horrific thing because a lot of the crusaders were there because they genuinely loved their belief system loved their god and loved the holy land that he was supposed to have walked around and they wanted to go and liberate it not really but that's how they believed it from the people who didn't have that love for the, for jesus and so love was a powerful force in driving the first and subsequent more later crusades were more about making money but the first crusade in particular love was a powerful force to drive them there um so it can be dark and it's also you know one thing i get quite a lot i get asked about what about oxytocin and like yeah oxytocin is complicated it's not i have oxytocin so i love you it's you know it's it's more about belongingness and boundaries when i look at the science about oxytocin about being about belongingness and uh, in-group and out-group familiarity and links and bounds and all that stuff. And I look at, the, at history and the way things work in history, wars, even the Crusades. I go, yeah, that does kind of fit. Um, so I'm not against all that. It's just how I see it in history is kind of different. I look for love in 
weird places. I also see that what people thought of as love has kind of changed as well. So the reason, according to Aristotle, that we're all stood on an Earth and not flying into space is because we love the planet. We love the globe, so we stand on it. Because it, to him, love was attraction. That's what it was, being attracted to something. And that included being attracted to the floor. So there's a lot less poetic versions of it mm. out there as well, much more practical things. So, <laughs> did you find did you find um, a big difference culturally where they have different words for love? You know, so for in English we just have love, but in the Greek there's you know eros and phylos and agape and these sort of different ways yeah. of thinking about the kinds of things you love. What what did what did you uncover there? Yeah, it's not unlike um, with disgust, where if you go back to the Hebrews, they had half a dozen words for revulsion, and we kind of have one. Even though I've just just used a second one, revulsion, I could probably trot out another five. It's that classic thing where people say, mm. Eskimos, Inuits, all have hundreds of words for snow. And when you sit down and think about it, you think, so does English. We have snow, we have sleet, we have, we have, yeah. And you go through all these different words. Um, we have yellow snow. Um, but in <laughs> love is a similar thing. We have this one word and the Greeks had agape love and they had various kind of different words and they had the genuine love of Eros, which was the love you get to if you properly control your sensitive soul and you let your logos control your love you can get to eros which is the genuine love of virtue and being genuinely virtuous being properly virtuous will lead you to there um but actually you know it is kind of different but sometimes i sit down and think how many words for love do we actually have in our language love and caring and yeah, well, you can go through them. Right? If you sat there for long enough, you'd find half a dozen mm. that are subtly different in a similar way. It's just the Greeks mm. like to write, the Greek philosophers like to talk about them a lot. So they seem like we've been much more in depth than we might have been recently. Um, mm. But yeah, it's it's very interesting that they, they're two main, they're big loves, uh, which is Eros and, I always pronounce this wrong, Buleis, are the same thing but one gone to gone out for the right reasons, for virtue, for using the mind to take you on the journey. And the other one is the same thing, but you've gone there for the wrong reason. You've gone there because you want to, because you've fallen for someone, because you've desired something too powerfully, because, you know, you just want a material gain and it's got nothing to do with how good it is for you and the people around you. Um, the same idea came back with um, the saints, about to say saint jerome but i don't mean saint jerome i mean saint augustine who had this idea that there was love and there was self-love he talked a lot about agape as well and the idea is that if it's self-love love of yourself doing it for selfish reasons you will always want more you'll always be desiring you'll never reach the finish the end goal but if it's mm -hmm. genuine love true love then you eventually reach the finish, the, the goal, where you want to be. You eventually find contentment, which for him was, of course, heaven and meeting God himself. That's, that's his idea. But there's something in that. If you, you know, you're doing things for the right reasons, you might eventually find contentment. You know, you might one day have enough. That'd be strange. <laughs> so. Hi, folks. Phil Kirby here, producer of the show. If you're enjoying The Evolving Leader and would like to stay connected with us between episodes, 
follow us on Twitter at evolving underscore leader. And please do leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. So if we get flipped to a completely different feeling uh, on emotion, yeah. fear. Let's talk about fear yes. because fear is obviously one of the most powerful emotions that we can experience. Mm. And as we've already talked about, your research into witch crazes is particularly revealing and I think relevant uh, to today's polarizing world. Can you give us some thoughts about what that research is shedding on today? Um, fear is an interesting one. Um, fear is one of those emotions that can become a background mood for an entire culture. It can drive almost every thought, almost every decision, almost every instinct. Um, when I talk about it in the book, I talk about the time of the witch crazes, the 17th century, when we just come towards the end of a period where they discovered this honking great continent on the other side of the ocean that Aristotle and the Bible curiously missed. So what's going on there? I thought Aristotle and the Bible knew everything, as they would have thought at the time. But what about the continent? They There was famine, there was floods, there was terrible new diseases coming around old diseases like the plague kept coming back um there was the worst wars in europe that europe has ever known which were the religious wars of the 17th century including the english civil war the war of three kingdoms as we now call it um and people thought genuinely it was the end of the world so people were terrified there was this air of fear at all times driving society and driving decisions including finding someone to persecute, which is where you end up with the witches as sort of an outlet for this fear. And I, we saw it again kind of during the Cold War. There was this cold fear during the Cold War where we were all kind of a bit frightened that somebody would press a big red button and that would be that after a huge argument or maybe too much to drink or something like that. Thankfully, it's not that easy. Um, but at the moment, I'm curious to know because I'm, I think... We have had a dose of that fear again, thanks to Vladimir Putin talking nuclear a lot. And I'm wondering how that's starting to affect mm -hmm. us, because I know I got that little feeling in the pit of my stomach that I remember from the 80s. Of, oh, no, no, mm -hmm. please don't calm down. Um, and I think it's kind of new to a lot of people because they didn't grow up with that. They don't understand this sort of constant niggle that actually planet-wide annihilation is possible it just takes one person to have a very bad day with enough power um but i'm not sure because there's i've been trying to work out what that i think there's always an emotion like that hanging around in the background of society and one thing i've been trying to work out is what is it other than pre the ukrainian war what was that thing and it's hard to pin down because it's all on social media. It's all on the internet now, these feelings. And I thought, is it shame? Everyone's talking about shame all the time, that we shouldn't feel shame at the same time. Those people should feel shame because they've said this thing. Is it offence? Is offence an emotion? Is that the floating emotion out there that we should avoid offence? So at the moment, it's possibly, coming full circle, fear. Because it's fear of causing shame it's fear of causing offense it's fear of saying the wrong thing it's fear of being cancelled it's fear of not helping cancel the right people and being seen to do so it's mm. this kind of again a background sort of fear and fear comes in lots of flavors so it doesn't necessarily have to be terror it can just be i need to fit in 
I need to be part of this, I need to be part of a group, and if I'm not, what does that mean? What will happen? Which brings us back to oxytocin and groupthink and in groups and groups, but <laughs> I'll leave it there before I go down a very, very long and dark mm. tunnel, wrapping myself up in emotions as I tend to do. That makes so much sense. <laughs> um, let's pivot again, and I'd be curious to hear about, you know, what, is, what does history tell us about the effect of more optimistic feelings associated with progress and freedom and other things that have been that are you know more uh well more positive well um feelings can always be positive even bad feelings can be good uh, the idea that emotions are negative yeah. and positive based upon how we feel is kind of a new one and it's useful for science but really we all know that being frightened of the bear is a good thing because it means you run away from the bear yeah, you know, being frightened of not falling off that cliff right. stops you from falling off the cliff. So negative feelings can be good. And in history, there have been positive feelings that have done bad things. I already mentioned love and the Crusades. And there are negative feelings that can do good things, like being frightened of harming someone or being frightened of starting a war or being disgusted by someone's behaviour. So you tell the police and that person gets arrested and doesn't do it again. You know, um... So I'm thinking of a positive emotion. Desire is a classic one. The desire for freedom, the desire for a new way of being, the desire to have uh, life, liberty and happiness in the case of the United States, which was a, a strong p- force in the in the breakaway from the UK and in the, in the independence movement. It was all, a lot of it was about the, a desire for something better that was fueled by the great Enlightenment philosophers and their ideas and them saying, well, we all want this. Why don't we just try and have it, you know, and then having a wonderful excuse of taxes. It's amazing what taxes can make you do. Um, So it's sort of this desire for better is always a good thing. Um, And that's that's one of my favourite drives is is desire for better. Um, But anger as well. Mm anger there are times when people have stepped over the line uh usually the british empire stepping on some uh some uh, country's toes and the people in that country going i've kind of had enough so i tell in the book i tell the story of yara santewa who was a queen of a uh, people who are now in the region of ghana in africa and they stole her golden throne that belonged to her son which was the throne they sat on the golden stool uh, and and ruled from the idea is when you sit on this stool it connects with all the people spiritually so it was a big deal to them and she discovered that the men in her tribe weren't up to fighting back so she took a rifle fired it at the men's feet and said if the men won't fight the women will and marched out with the women to go and attack the british and they lost to the might of the british empire but they took a good chunk of the british empire over there with them before they did these warrior women and that was rage she described it as being like weeds growing from her chest Mm. that normally she would prune back but now she was going to let them grow because she wanted them to affect Mm. the others um so there's a great example of a positive emotion anger can be an energy sometimes just don't let it don't get carried away with it (laughs) That was, uh, I think it was Johnny Rotten's quote, wasn't it? It was. Public Image Limited. It was the title of one of his autobiographies, I seem to remember. Um, yeah. So, can we go back a, a step? And you, know, you mentioned uh, Thomas Hobbes um, and the fire. Mm-hmm. Um, but also, 
you know, there are a number of other people like Descartes and and uh, Thomas Brown that you mentioned have had a really profound influence on our modern understanding of emotion. Where was that turning point? Can you bring that together for us in terms of telling the story around uh, how that shifted our understanding of human nature? It comes back, as so many things do, I mentioned that we found this massive great continent and everyone said Aristotle didn't mention that. Um, Aristotle knew everything, but he didn't mention America. So what's going on here? Now, when that happened, we got the beginnings of what would eventually become the Enlightenment. We got what is often called the scientific revolution, where people like Francis Bacon would say, I think maybe Aristotle was a bit of an idiot. Maybe, maybe he was wrong. Maybe we should stop listening to these old people and do something new. We should try and develop a new way of understanding the world. And they eventually came up with empiricism, which bizarrely is a, was originally in a religious action. It was, we want to try and make our know things that we would have known before God kicked us out of the Garden of Eden. So we need to take things out of our brain and look at them in the world and measure them. And that's empiricism. It's sort of, let's look at them in the world and not try and think about it. Let's see it, do it, experience it. And so you've got all these people starting to do that. And one of the things that changed was passions. They start to look at Plato and Aristotle's emotions and go, I'm not sure they're quite right. I'm not sure that's quite what it is. I think there's more to it than just a bit of the soul that gets perturbed and we go, oh no, and that's what passions are. So you see in the 17th century, the beginning of a huge increase in works on the passions, on emotions. Lots of the, as Thomas Wright wrote, I could, I could list them forever, there's so many, lots of them. So for example, there are books on manners. Now these books on manners, if those of you I'm speaking to are interested in emotional intelligence, if you can find a 17th century book on manners, of which there are many, you'll be fascinated to read and see what 17th century emotional intelligence science looked like. Because that's what manners was back then. It wasn't just being polite. It was how you can control your emotions, how you can look, understand others' emotions, how you can get better at understanding other people's emotions and work with those emotions to bring them onto your fold. All the kinds of things we see in emotional intelligence work and all that kind of stuff. But they called it manners. Um, quite often it was Catholics secretly writing how to preach and convert people as well these manners books so there's a wonderful little secondary thread in them but they were starting to look at emotions in a much more interesting and um fuller way than had been done before they were seeing them start to see them more scientifically which led to descartes in his last book saying at the beginning i'm not going to look at these like a philosopher i am a trained physician i'm going to look at them like a physician and actually writing a book about the passions from what he believed was a medical standpoint of cataloging them, saying this is how they work, this is what they are, this is how you can spot them, this is what happens if you lose control of them medically and what you can do to correct that, Um, and sort of being a bit more scientific about it. And so he spurred on lots of other people to do a similar thing, including Brown, Thomas Brown. They were all called Thomas, except for René. Descartes, funnily enough. Anyway, so Thomas Brown then, like I say, <laughs> found this way of separating them. And from Thomas Brown's new idea, this guy called Charles Darwin went, well, that idea fits in with what I see in the animal kingdom. It fits in with evolution. That The idea we evolve, the same we evolved sight, we evolved fear. The same we evolved hearing, we evolved love. 
that makes sense. So he then wrote, um, he he then wrote about the emotions. Yeah, and his last book, Descartes' last book, was about the emotions. Darwin's last book was about the emotions. There's something going on about last books and emotions, but that's a whole other thing. But he wrote the expression of emotions mm-hmm. in man and animals, and to try and again catalogue scientifically what emotions were how they worked how they were similar how they were different um in different cultures how they were the same everywhere in certain circumstances um and then you get people like um james who comes along william james comes along and says yes this makes sense to me as well because i understand emotions as this construction of feeling that you get when you experience something and he starts basically stuck creates a psychology of emotions idea he writes the first paper of emotions from the point of view of psychology of the mind um some argue david hume sort of did that as well but david hume's work on emotions passions is very patchy and weird so i like to put him over there and say yeah if you like but really james starts to really scientific as a, as a psychological thing and so you get this progression from aristotle was wrong descartes saying i'm gonna look at these like a physician to Brown saying, this is what these are. This is how we categorise them. To, yes, and that category works with evolution. To, yes, and it works with the brain. And that kind of kickstarts modern science as we know it. You get Charcot and Freud and Jung and everyone who comes after it. In all the things that you're you're currently doing, where's the area where you um, you're you're kind of wrestling most with in terms of your own uncertainty about what you've learned around emotion? What I've learned about emotions, I'm always two minds as to just how much evolved and how much didn't. I mean, it all evolved, even if there's a cultural predisposition to taking cultural emotions that part of the brain that evolved for us to be able to do that evolved for us to be able to do that so remember to say oh it's evolution or it's cultural i'm like now nah, the cultural bit evolved as well you know it's all also in the end you know right but how much it is cultural and how much it is evolved i'm kind of always grappling with i always go with the answer to the nature nurture question is yes that's what i tend to go for um but Same. how much of it's that and how much of it's that every now and again another paper comes out and i lean one way and then another paper comes out and i lean the other way it's probably somewhere in the middle but that's probably it that's always going to be i think for a long time that's going to be the big question how much of this is just stimulus response built into it and how much of it is the stuff we build on top of it and how much that stuff built on top of it is cultural and how much isn't so it's a big question so we've covered a lot of ground and we could cover tons more. I would love to. I'd love to spend a couple more hours with you. But I'm wondering, you know, is for our listeners, bringing some of this uh, evolving understanding of emotions through understanding its history, what is some application? What is, what is a, a leader who's listening right now? What, what might they do with all of this uh, information you're sharing? There are a few things you can do if you are a leader, if you are, I mean, for example, like I I mentioned that there were books on manners that sound a lot like emotional intelligence, and the Greeks had similar writings on how you could control your pathway to better be a better leader and a better general. That's a lot of what Aristotle's rhetoric is about. 
It's about it's it's a work on emotional intelligence from the point of view of ancient Greece, which tells you when an idea is that strong and keeps coming up again and keeps getting refined and keeps getting made better and keeps that there's something in it. Maybe you ought to get think about it and think about how using something like emotional intelligence can make you a better leader because it always has because you know Alexander the Great, Aristotle's pupil, wasn't a bad leader, you know. He's quite good at that leadership thing. Um, that's why he conquered everywhere and everyone seemed to like him. A bit too much in the end. Um, but he's, yeah, I think that's an interesting thing. There's lots of things in history that you can see echo through the years of emotions and go, there must be something in that because we keep coming back to it. We keep refining it and reinventing it and coming up with new ideas um, and the other thing is to understand if you've got if you're leading people that right down to the individual people's emotional landscapes can be different which comes back into emotional intelligence as well mm-hmm. but it's understanding that some people may react 180 degrees from somebody else's reaction to the same thing and that realizing that, that mm-hmm. those emotional reactions can be completely different is kind of something that i think all the good leaders I've ever known are very much aware of that. That, you know, right. I know there's one group that's going to love this and one that's going to help this. How do I, how do I therefore do this and bring them together? Where do I find that middle ground so that uh, my work, half my workforce don't want to take me out for a drink and the other half want to poison me with the same drink? You know, it's just, how do we do this? <laughs> um, and again, you can see in history ways people have done that, ways people have used certain techniques to bring people together sometimes you get people like popes causing crusades by doing these things but not always it's not always bad sometimes it's good things <laughs> what else should we be asking you about that we haven't covered so far what what are you um you know really excited about that we we haven't delved into well my interests at the moment are in the future and where emotions are going um that's what I'm really interested in. I've recently been looking at uh, an emotion that's been called, um, what's it called again? Solastalgia. Solastalgia, that's it. And basically it's the emotion that is expressed all over the world consistently by people who have had their homes destroyed by climate change. And I'm finding it fascinating mm. that everyone, they describe uh, this mixture of fury shame and deep sorrow for the loss of their of home home not being there anymore sort of it's almost like a nost- sad nostalgia and it's all expressed together and that's what i'm really interested in at the moment i'm finding that quite curious and i'm i'm that it seems a universal reaction to something like this um, because it's happening all over and i want to know whether it's just us just the scientists making it universal going oh we've got this box and they're doing that let's wedge it in there and actually if you look at it closely it isn't it isn't quite so neat fitting or whether actually there's a universal reaction to the world destroying something and knowing that something could have been done about it but we never did um Mm. so that's kind of where my research is at the moment um i'm working at watson university business university in india not in india sadly it's much warmer um but uh i'm working with them on on this kind of idea and how that can impact 
funnily enough, business and leadership thought and how this emotion um, is is impactful on ideas of, uh, you know, the co- one is people who are trying to make money from this emotion, which is a bit strange, and the other are groups of people who are trying to find ways to just to understand it and see where it fits in with the landscape of things in the world right now. Because, yeah, that's where I am. Um, I'm also interested whether or not you think there might have been a highly characteristic and shared emotion around COVID um, and and the different stages of it from the initial lockdowns. Yeah, COVID's an interesting one. Um, The research is being done. I see the papers popping out every now and again. And at the moment, a lot of it is people weren't very happy during lockdown because they were lonely. And a lot of it's about loneliness, which of course is is a is worse than people think it is. You know, it's a potentially fatal disease. Is loneliness? We're, we're a group animal. We like to be together. It's we're very much a you know a, a herd. Um, but it's not something I've looked at much. But it is something I plan to. Um, like I said, my research is going into the future, so I'm thinking about that. And so, I think the science is going to be coming out more and more about how how covid shaped emotions as much as emotions shaped covid in different places the one thing i have seen which i find interesting is masks because and this links to emojis emoticons and emojis in uh, in, in the east emoticons usually differ by the eyes they ex- emotions are expressed with eyes as much as they are with the mouth but primarily smiles and sadness are about eyebrows and eyes in the west it's from the nose down and there are some papers that think that the reason the west had a backlash against masks is because people weren't able to read each other's feelings when you had a mask on whereas in mm. the east they still could because they used to express them with their eyes whereas we don't so much and that's interesting i'm not entirely sold on it Mm. but it is quite an interesting explanation for why people some people freaked out about masks uh, for a while but that's a bit of covid stuff it's curious yeah but it's it's tentative research at the moment let's see where that goes i won't commit until it's better so there's more of it (laughs) like a good scientist and historian (laughs) (laughs) But it feels kind of intuitively right, doesn't it? <laughs> it does, yeah, yeah. There are also research that suggests in the West we're very good at tracking emotions with eyes. That kind of blows it to one side a little bit. So, like uh, I say, let's we'll see. So. Yeah. Well, Richard, th- uh, there's. I feel very grateful right now. Is my my emotion <laughs> because uh, I thank you for your time and sharing all of this rich research with us. It's super interesting. And I encourage all of our listeners to pick up your book uh, today if they haven't read it already. Thank yeah, you. Yeah, no, I, I, uh, yes, I, 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 yeah, I agree with that. Uh, definitely, I've really enjoyed this because it, mm. it's, um, it just makes you, it gives you kind of um, headspace. Uh, I found when I was reading it because it's not like t- either a typical history book or a science book or even a business book or anything like that. It actually is just a pure pleasure to kind of inhabit these different um, aspects of of, of, of history. Um, so it brought something very new to to my thinking around this. And uh, it's beautifully written as well, Richard. You, you're obviously thank you. passionate about this topic. So thank you for that. Yeah. Yes, thank you. Yeah. Um, I'm kind of passionate. The book exists because people don't know it, this field even is a field. So I wanted to tell the world, or at least some of it, 
Look, yeah. there's this field and it's fun. So. <laughs> well, until next time, remember, the world is evolving. Are you? <laughs>